Thank you. Thank you, worship team. It's awesome to sing a psalm. That was Psalm 34 that we just sang. That, how awesome is that? So you think thousands and thousands of years of worshiping God, and we can be singing the same song that the fellow people that we will worship with in heaven sang to God also. How awesome is that? Well, good morning, everyone. Tomorrow starts February. You know, some months you're like, boy, I'm glad that month's over. Other months it's like, oh, oh, I wish this would never end. I'm just shocked that tomorrow is February already. It's, and it means a lot of where I work, how ending February, what it means to us. So it's going to be a short month. Yay. Um, the other good news, I'll continue my countdown. Seven more weeks, people. Seven more weeks till we get to spring forward. Yay! Um, and we all, it seems like we all survived winter. I know I was getting updates from Sal, his winter wonderland he was showing me photos of, and then it rained and all went away. So um, the good thing is my house survived. We are waiting for... Um, a flat roof we have we're waiting for the construction to be done we have a few minor hiccups from the insurance company just amazing you can be in a customer service field and you don't respond to people until they threaten to call your boss so we are still tomorrow I get to go threaten his boss again threaten to call his boss again um, we just want our house put back together so it's glad that we you know, because when you saw, looked at, at when it was going to rain, shoot, I was looking at, at um, weather.com, and I was like, okay, it's not a big deal. If this goes the way it looks like, it's just going to just skim over the top of our valley. And then they have this little feature where you can put like six to eight hours in the future. And when I did that, it moved us right to the center <laughs> of that storm that went through. It was like, oh, we're not getting away from this. I mean, like, it went all the way from the top of Nevada, just below Chihuahua, Mexico. I love that they put that in there, because I love saying that word, Chihuahua, Mexico. So we got hit, but it, it wasn't that bad. I think the worst thing it is, it caused me to be up at 5 in the morning to go see how the base was, if it was going to be open or closed. So, and when I get up, my wife gets up, so. Sorry, babe. It was a public apology. So I hope you guys had a great week last night uh, reflecting back on chapter 12 and its promises, uh, knowing that in Christ we can trust and not be afraid and, and know that the Lord is our salvation, which brings us joy. And then with that joy, we will draw water from the wells of salvation. Now... That all ends. Now we're moving into a new section of Isaiah this week. So starting today all the way through chapter 27, we're going to talk about God's universal kingdom and then the king of Zion. So this is a natural flow, though. I mean, God has it in here that we talked about this triumphant of grace from 6 to 12 and how a remnant of his people um, would receive this. And now we're going to talk about this triumphant king 
um, how he let us know there's nothing but peace with no end of the time. And then we saw in chapter 11, we saw he will gather a worldwide people and bring it in. This will be larger than the original Exodus. So now we look at the worldview given to us in this section, 13 through 27. The next, this next section will be a little bit different, a little bit different from the grace and the peace we've been going over. Um, God is putting the nations that are around Israel, and for that matter, he is letting the whole world know that the day of the Lord, this is how it will go down. And then despite, you have to think about when this was given. So we're about 3,000 years and counting, and very few people on earth are heeding this message. So the section that we're going to go over breaks down into the following way. Um, the, it goes into different oracles, and so the first five are given specific titles related to historical people. So we see in 13.1, God starts talking about Babylon. In 14.28, he talks about Philistia. In 15.1, Moab. In 17.1, he starts talking about Damascus and Israel. And then in 19.1, he goes on about Egypt. And then we move into five cryptic titles, which... Um, they're given to a particular people, but we have no like historical data around them. So we see that in 21, God reverts back to talking about Babylon, and that's verse one. In verse 11 of 21, he talks about Edom, and then in 13 of 21, he talks about Arabia. In 22:1, he's gonna talk about Judah, and then in 23.1, he talks about Tyre. So this is going to be a bumpy ride. And with most of the Psalms and the Proverbs, though, we see the promises of God and redemption given. And that's going to finally come at the end of this section. We will see that in 27. So the people groups that we're going to cover in this are Babylon, Philistia, Moab, Damascus, or you could say Israel and Egypt. So again, God is addressing all the people that surround his, his city, Jerusalem. In this first section we're going to go over is Babylon to the north, Philistia is to the west, Moab on the east, and Egypt to the south. So at this point, it's showing us that, that God's city, Jerusalem, seems vulnerable, seems vulnerable. And if his people, if they forget his power and wonder where they're going to get this security from, they're going to fail. And we know from the earlier section, King Ahaz had already failed, right? He didn't turn to God. Here Isaiah went to him and offered him you tell me what you want. Tell God what you want. And he says nothing too big. He'll give it to you. And what did Ahaz do? He said, no, 
I don't want to put God to the test, which really meant I've already failed. I went and asked the king of Assyria to help us, and so it showed that he went to man for salvation in this situation and didn't seek God. And we will see God has his people in this region for a specific purpose. And they are central in this region because God wants them there for all of his plans and prophecies and how he has the end taking place. His people and his land are exactly where he wants them. So we will see God's purposes and we will see his end times in, in these chapters, especially in 13 through 20. So while researching this, you know, all of 13 through 27, I, I wanted to, to break and, and share this wonderful description I picked up on chapters 24 through 27. So 24 and 27 talk about Jerusalem, Moab, Assyria, Judah, but like I said earlier, they don't point to a definite time in history. So this section was described, and I love this, as an impressionistic, rhapsodical, and full of song. So basically, basically this section is an eschatological cantata, and the theme is worldwide overthrow and, and rectification. I love this. So basically, basically, this section is a musical with song, with backup singers, with everything, it, devoted to the end of the world as we know it. And, and God is putting it how he wants it, and we will sing about its struggles and its major battles, and then this glorious new world that will come out of it. And the section ends in 27 with the picture not of final destruction, but of a worldwide harvest God performs to bring that remnant back in. I love that. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we just want to thank you so much for this time to worship. We just want to thank you so much for the songs leading up to this message that you put on our music team and how great they were. We thank you so much that uh, they minister to us through you. We thank you for all the work that goes into that. Father, we thank you for this time that we can come into this passage. We never want to take for granted where you have us in your word. To me, like when I saw this coming up to this book, it was no mistake. You put this on Al's heart, and it was awesome to see that. We thank you so much for this. We thank you that we got to go through Zechariah and 1 Thessalonians to lead up to this. Perfect. We thank you so much, God, for all your ways. Just be with us now. Help us to be attentive. Um, help us to put our cares away of this world. Help us just to put it all aside and, and focus on you. We love you so much. Amen.
So we're going to go over the passage, chapter 13. It starts off with an oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amoz saw. It says, on a bare hill, on a bare hill, raise a signal, cry aloud to them, wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exulting ones. The sound of tumult is on the mountain as of a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms, the nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens, and the Lord and his weapons of indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and, ang and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark as it's, as it's rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant, and lay low the, the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold, and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble, and of the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts. In the day of his fierce anger, and like a hunted grizzel, or like sheep with none to gather them, each will turn to his own people, and each will flee to his own land. Whoever is found will be thrust through, and whoever is caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them, who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb and their eyes will not pity children. And Babylon, the glory of the kingdoms, the splendor and the pomp of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down there. But wild animals will lie down there and their houses will be full of howling creatures. Their ostriches will dwell, their ostriches will dwell, and their wild goats will dance. 
Hyenas will cry in its towers and jackals in the pleasant palaces. Its time is close at hand and its days will not be prolonged. Amen. Now, if we look back at previous passages and you were summing up who you would talk about here, would it be Babylon? Who is the threat that we saw during this period of time? It was Assyria, right? And in Second Chronicles, Assyria comes to Jerusalem long before Babylonian armies. And later in Isaiah, we will see the same thing. First, the struggle with Assyria, and then Babylon comes. Remember, the mighty Assyrian army came to sack the city and under King Hezekiah, who's, who's not even in power yet as Isaiah is doing this. But King Hezekiah, it's a great story, humbled himself, actually, humbled himself during a rough period, didn't look to man, and God provided the victory. God alone provided the victory. But that story's coming up. Like I said, feel free to read ahead. So why does God have Isaiah start with Babylon in this first section? Well, you're going to see as we go through this that, that God is bouncing. He has Isaiah bouncing back and forth, right? He has him looking forward in the future. Then he has looking all the way to the very end. Um, so, and I think, I think God wants to really start with the people of Babylon. Now, since the flood, this region has lived with human pride and not humbled themselves. The people live there in arrogance and really look to themselves for their own self-sufficiency. In Genesis 11:9, we see the story about this. Um, the story of this people that didn't disperse, but they all settled together in this region and developed great pride in themselves and built the Tower of Babel. And this area became Babylon. And they didn't learn their lesson and they continued in pride. And they got their name Babylon. I don't see where they got that from. The only thing we're led to understand is because they continued to go on and on about themselves. Um, the name was short to Babylon. About them. Okay. I need Sal up here with the symbols. Okay. So Babylon is always seen as evil, and Revelation, as you go through it, is always littered with these things about Babylon. And then its fall is described in Revelation 18. So while Assyria is this present threat to, to God and his people, in his wisdom, he's addressing the ultimate problem right up front, man and his sin. So today we're going to go over three parts of this first oracle that's concerning Babylon. The first one's real easy. It's 13.1. This, this oracle gives a title to the subject and talks about the author. Now in 13.2 through 16, we get to talk about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. I remember this from Zechariah. It's, so, it's awesome to be able to go through this again. 
13, 17 through 22 is the overthrow of Babylon by the Medes. So let's jump in. 13.1. This title is giving us the subject and the author. An oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amaz saw. Oracle means lifting up of a voice or a declaration. And we know in this case, a lot of times, Isaiah would sing this, would sing this out. And Isaiah knew from God, he knew from God, that Judah would be deported, and he came to know that it wouldn't be by Assyria. And we think God may have shown Isaiah what nation would overthrow and deport Jerusalem. In, later on in Isaiah, in 39, 5 through 6. Isaiah 39, 5 through 6. It says, Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, all that which your fathers have stored up to this day, shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And why is that? You got to think Hezekiah did so good. Um, when tough things happened, he reached out to the Lord. When Assyria was coming and they were there and they're threatening, telling people, just give up now. Just give up and come out. We won't kill you. Isaiah told Hezekiah, be strong. Hezekiah went in and prayed and they left. He had an illness. He was told by Isaiah, you're going to die. Hezekiah prayed, got more life, and he stopped. And he stopped at that point as far as we can tell. So when the Babylonians sent spies there as the, hey, we heard you were sick, how you doing? Hezekiah, Hezekiah failed to, to get with Isaiah to pray about this, about this visit. Um, like I shared last week, you know, here, here in Genesis 24, 12, you have Abraham giving his servant a direction from the Lord. What does that servant do? A servant stopped and prayed to God for success. It was already granted. God told Isaiah, uh, Abraham, go here, send your servant there, and get a bride for your son. The servant stopped and prayed. Isaac, I mean, Hezekiah missed the basic foundation of being a leader over God's people. He didn't pray. He didn't pray. So this is when Isaiah told him, you know, you're going to be carried off. And what pleased Hezekiah? He was told it wouldn't be in his lifetime. So he was happy. 13, 2 through 16. 13, 2 through 16. The day of the Lord. When the day of the Lord starts, there will be no peace, no peace until God says it's done. We see this in Amos 5, 18 through 20. Basically, there will be nowhere to turn, nowhere to go for the enemies of God. In these verses, through 2 through 16, we're going to see 2 to 3, we're going to see a summons a summons to a holy war. 
4 through 5, we're going to see a mustering of a worldwide army. 6 through 8, the terror that inspires. And 9 through 13, we're going to see the moral purpose in all of this. And then 14 through 16, we're going to look at this will be a day of no escape. So in 2 and 3, on a bare hill, bare hill, raise a signal, cry aloud to them, wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exulting ones. The words raise, cry, and wave in here are all second person plural. This gives us a picture of God having his agents, his warriors, poised and ready to go to battle. Raise the signal may cause you to remember this sentence. We saw it before in 526. We saw it again. It said, he will raise a signal for the nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth and behold, quickly, speedily, they will come. We also saw this in 11, chapter 11, verses 10 and 11. These prophecies express God's gathering of his people throughout the world. And he's signaling from a bill here, bare hill. I'm going to get that word right, although I don't think I'm going to say it again. Um, he's signaling. Why is the hill bare? Visibility. If you have a, a hill that's full of trees and you're asking for an update, you're going to say, this tree trunk hasn't moved at all. But if it's bare, you have clear visibility. Well, you'll be able to see everything. And wave the hand is also going to be seen in 14, 26 through 27. And also, it's a sign of God's outstretched hand against his enemy. To enter the gates, we see here, is also a sign of God overthrowing his enemies. And I love this. In verse 3, my consecrated ones, my mighty men. These are intense and powerful warriors God has assembled. I spoke to you earlier about the mighty men. It's a great, great story to read about how legendary and how powerful these guys are for their abilities in war. By going through Isaiah, we also see that in some cases, mighty men were from the tribe of Levi, so they were priests. And we saw that when we went through Second Chronicles, if you read Second Chronicles 26 through 17, talking about the king at this time, Uzziah, who began to go crazy and think that he could go offer incense in the temple. And so the priest at that time gathered up 80 mighty men now, if you think of the damage 80 mighty men could do, and it took all of them to, to stop this king from acting like a priest. So he, the king must have brought an army with him to come in there. And so 
he uses this term to call his warriors. So if these are God's spiritual warriors, the power that they have is intense. So he says he has summoned these mighty men to execute his judgment and execute his anger. And he says he is proud of his triumphant ones. And then it's no wonder that when God is on their side and, and they are called proud, exulting, or triumphant ones, they know victory is at hand here because God is in control. Verses 4 and 5, a mustering of a worldwide army. The sound of tumult is on the mountains as of a great multitude the sound of an uproar of the kingdoms, of nations gathered together. The Lord is host is mustering a host for battle. They will come from a distant land, from the ends of the heavens, and the Lord and his weapons of indignation to destroy the whole land. So here we go. Four and five give us a picture of armies posturing before the battle, and getting their cheers together, getting their cheers going. And Isaiah is giving us a picture of Jerusalem being surrounded on all sides by their enemy. And their enemies are pumping themselves up for this battle. And being able to be surrounded is one thing that Israel and Jerusalem, I should say, has experienced a whole history of, right? Um, but here we have serious armies gathered around them and remember from Zechariah it's in incredible numbers almost every soldier from the whole wide world is against Jerusalem in this picture but God is mustering up his host also um, they're going to be ready for battle and in verse 3 we already hear of them triumphantly praising God so this host will also as we can take a sneak peek ahead, and we know it's going to be led by none other than Jesus Christ. Verse 5 reminds me again of Zechariah in 12.3 when we talk about the entire forces of the world coming in to surround Jerusalem and defeat it. They must have been, and they will, I guess it's hard to sometimes think that we already know how it's going to end. We'll talk about it in past tense. But they must have been so confident and will be so confident that they will destroy this little tiny city. Mm. But in verse 5, we see God will end all the world's forces. This is not about a kingdom or a nation. This is all of the world being defeated. Being defeated. 6 through 8. The terror that inspires... It says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and anxiety will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor, and they will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be a flame. 
this mighty earthly force. It's going to come in. It's going to be encouraged by Satan and his, and his forces. And they are going to be told, they're going to be led to believe they have all the might in the world and they're going to blow away this tiny little small city. Then they can go back to living in their freedom as they want to. There'll be no more threat from Christianity. We saw in verse 4, they're pumped up, they're geeked up, they're ready to go. And then we get to verses 6 through 9, and everything changes for them. 6 starts off with a word to them. It says, wail, for the day of the Lord is near. Real concise and easy. Um, this warning does not, need, does not mean for them to know that the day is coming, but instead they need to be very concerned with the impact that this day will have on the world when God unleashes it. And then we talk about destruction from the Almighty. This phrase means God is able to keep his promises and he is not like man who may in every good intention make a promise but fail on it. God can and will do whatever he says. The hands and the heart in verse 7, this is an interesting picture for, for us to see. Here we have an outward picture of hand and then we have the inner picture of the heart. Um, the enemies of God will be so terrified that the picture here of a hand means they won't be able to act. And of the heart, it means they won't be able to plan. We will see they will melt, or a picture, another picture is they will waste away from the terror they see. They will be dismayed, or terror will seize them. The word here used as dismayed or terror, it's, it's a very brief statement in the Hebrew, and it enhances the grim reality, the grim reality of what's going to happen in 6 and 7. Um, so we need to also just look at this reference. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. This is not a picture given to us of just simple pain, but it's a picture of a pain that is sudden, inevitable, and inescapable. When, when labor starts for a woman, there's no pause button, right? Um, there is no stopping the process. It is go time whether you're ready or not. You know, it's going to happen. And we see that when we went through 1 Thessalonians, right? So 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, and 3, if we remember, it's been a while. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying, there is peace, there's security then sudden destruction will come upon them as the labor pains come on a pregnant woman and there will be no escape. So let's continue back. They will look aghast at one another. I love this phrase. 
because it's going to be so true. It gives us a picture of what exactly is going to happen. This means someone who is struck with the realization that they were dead wrong. Dead wrong. And I like this expression. They are stupefied by what is going on. Um, they are not aghast or struck with fear, per se. They're initially lacking an understanding of what is going on. They had a game plan. Their coach went over it in the locker room with them. They knew that they were playing a weaker team and they were going to mow them over. Something happened they didn't plan for. This sure thing that they had built themselves up believing has been pulled out from under them in a second. They are in a state of confusion and they have no idea where to turn. Their faces aflame. We get this picture of them staring at each other in agony and then they get this moment of clarity. They will, in that split second, realize they were on the wrong side. They trusted in the wrong leaders. And the word aflame there might either be the embarrassment of the moment or it's a building up of sweat from the amount of fear they are feeling about what will be coming next for them. 9 through 13 goes over the moral purpose in all of this. The moral purpose in all of this. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy the sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp and of the arrogance, and I will lay low the, ponch, the pompous pride of the ruthless. And I will make people more rare than fine gold, and mankind than the gold of a fear. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place, and the wrath of the Lord of its hosts on, in that day of his fierce anger. So 9 starts off to grab our attention there, right? Behold. This comes out as a loud word to get our attention. So we pay attention to this serious subject. So behold, let's go. Here is what is mentioned all throughout the Bible about what will happen during the day of the Lord. From here in Isaiah to Joel, we see it, Zechariah, and also in Revelation. And throughout the Bible, we, the whole thing is building up our coming King Messiah. The description in 9 shows that there will be no mercy and his overflowing anger will no longer be contained and we will see God's burning passion 
taken out on the sinners. Land, you can also substitute in the world, the word world. So the world is full of sin and it is now going to bear the consequences of that. Here is the day that sin comes, sin comes face to face with this holy God and sinners are destroyed. In verse 10, we see the opposite of what we talked about earlier. We talked about earlier how our God is light, right? We shared earlier that Jesus is that light. So here we see a picture. We see a picture of the denial of the benefit of creation to sinners. It's amazing. It's a picture of, of a time where there's no light and it's mentioned throughout the Bible of, of this coming. And it's a picture of what their eternal judgment will be like, dark and miserable. This withdrawal gives us a picture of the oncoming darkness that they will face. In 11, we see what will God do to those who are found guilty. This is not an indiscriminate day of judgment. This is not willy-nilly. This is a focused judgment on those found guilty based on the evidence that they have provided from the way they live their life. 12 talks about when the evil people are exterminated, those of us that are left will be like fine gold, rare to find. It talks about a city named Ophir that is an undetermined location, but wherever it is, it has fine gold. Now, before Solomon, it was mentioned that Ophir could be in Arabia, in Solomon's time, they said it was across the sea. So that led me to believe that the rightful name for Sutter's Mill is Ophir, right? No? Sal, we got to work on a routine where you got to... Okay. 13 forms the summary and conclusion of this very hard passage. God has set his hand to judge creation so the heavens and the world will shake. So the order of all creation is going to be undone by God's mighty judgment. When God acts, creation, which includes the heavens and the earth, will react. 14 through 16, this will go on that there will be a day of no escape, a day of no escape. And like the hunted gazelle, or like sheep with no one to gather them, each will turn to his own people, each will flee to his own land. Whoever is found will be thrust through, and whoever is caught will be fallen by the sword. Their infants will be dashed to pieces before their eyes, their houses will be plundered, and their wives ravished. So we look prior at verses 2 through 5. We see these mighty warriors gathered on the mountains, cheering, pumping themselves up. Now, now here, 
we will look at the surviving mighty warriors scattering, scattering. 14 gives us this interesting picture of a gazelle and a sheep. Why is it there? Well, when you think about it, a hunted gazelle, when it has someone's attention, what is it doing? It's fleeing. It is getting away. It wants nothing to do with the person with that bow or that rifle. It wants nothing to do with them. And then sheep, sheep without a shepherd, what do they do? They just wander and, and sheep are, are, are pretty stupid. So they'll either wind up as prey or get themselves killed. I love this because shortly after I started working at the rocket site, we, there was this wild sheep and it was up on this one high point and it had this like marking on it. So we even had some of the women that worked in that area write poems about it and they got put in our little, all this about it. They didn't realize this is a sheep. So one day I, I went out to just see this. I've never saw it. And I got the story. It's like, Bill, don't bring the sheep up to the women. It's like, why? It said, well, we were out one day at lunchtime just hanging out, and all of a sudden we see this sheep just roll down the mountain <laughs> to its demise. So that gives us a picture of what will happen. Sheep without a shepherd will wind up rolling down the hill in front of humans and, and killing itself. So going back to the story, when, we, when this people find God as their enemy, when they find him as their enemy and losing him as their shepherd, they are going to be helpless. They are going to be helpless. They will try to flee from God, but they have nowhere to go. And that's what we talked about earlier. When you, when you come up against God in your life, don't flee, don't stop communication. Run to him, run to him. It's going to do no good to flee God. It's going to do no good. So they early on are gathered on the mountains, cheering, expecting a great victory. Now that all they want to do is get home. Just get me back home. This was horrible. It didn't work. So in 14, we see there is no protector for him. Now looking in 15, we're going to see there is no escape for them. No escape. It says, whoever is found or caught will be thrust through. One fate awaits all of them. So we see no protection. We see no escape. And now we're going to look at no mercy. No mercy. If anyone happens to make it home, they will see their dear ones destroyed. All will be gone. Homes, wives, children. Before this day, at least sinners, before the day of the Lord, at least sinners shared in common grace. Common grace. And that means because God's here, at least they have a measure of order, even though they don't know him. Okay? So without it, it's now pulled away. We're in the day of the Lord. So without it, people are going to revert to their true nature. 
They're going to revert to their true nature. So we see images of here of this inhumane savagery of a fallen people, and, and they're acting with no restraints. No restraints. So let's go to the end here. The overthrow of Babylon by the Medes. So Isaiah is talking about the future. He jumped ahead to an undetermined future. We see it as well over, well over, like 2,700 years and counting and counting. Now he's going to go, he's in the future, the future that we still consider a future. Now he's going to go back from that future to a future of about 200 years in front of him. This is the overthrow of Babylon by the Medes. It says, Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them, who have no regard for silver, no delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter their young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will pity no children. And Babylon, the glory of the kingdoms, the splendor and the pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all the generations. No Arab will pitch his tent in there. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down there. But wild animals will lie down. Their houses will be full of howling creatures. Their ostriches will dwell and their wild goats will dance. Hyenas will cry in its towers and jackals in the pleasant palaces. Its time, its, its time is close at hand and its days will not be prolonged. So, like I said, Isaiah has now moved his attention to a 200-year to a range about the coming destruction of Babylon. Um, the Medes destroyed it around 539 B.C., if I'm correct. And then 17 says, it is God who stirred up the Medes. He is in control of all aspects of time and history and will definitely be, as we've gone over, he will definitely be controlled on the last days. God has made the means to have no mercy. That means money can't buy him. You can't walk out like they would do in this time and say, relent, we'll give you whatever you want. Relent. It's not happening. They are going to complete this assignment for God. In 18, it says strike down, which means dashed to pieces. That's an interesting picture that used by a bow that their enemies will dash them to pieces. Or maybe we can think of it as like they will shoot them up to pieces. And this shows they will not be stopped by money or mercy. We will see this demonstration, this demonstration of no mercy is shown here by them killing the young men and the children and having no pity for the weak. God has given them a direction 
and a mission to complete, and they are following it. In 19, this prideful people, there's a picture here of a prideful people that are so full of themselves, but now they have to scramble. They will not be able to bribe their attackers. They will not receive mercy from them. So remember that one fate awaits for them also. All the proud will be either, will either be crouching among the prisoners or they will fall among the dead. Now, the destruction of a people by God that's used is Sodom and Gomorrah. And that seems to be the gold standard for when we talk about a destruction, right? That destruction was pretty intense. And if we remember our, our, our Bible story about it, Abraham tried negotiating with the Lord about if you find so many righteous people, will you avert your dis destruction? Turns out they couldn't even find five, right? They couldn't even find five righteous people. So this was destroyed. And we see the Medes will do, will do the same thing to them. They are being used to fulfill God's judgment and he is in full control. And we see that once Babylon is destroyed, God says it will never, never be inhabited again. So in God's choice of Im imagery that we're looking here, we see that even a nomad passing by will not stop and pitch a tent there. And the shepherd who grazes his livestock won't even stop there. Babylon will only be inhabited by wild animals. This time is close at hand, and it will not be prolonged. We see more of this in Revelation. Revelation 18, 4 through 10. It says, Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her cup she mixed. As she glorified herself, and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart, she says, I sit as queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, a single day, death and mourning and famine. She will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, 
you mighty city of Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. So the day of the Lord is going to come and it's going to be a terrible reality, a terrible reality for so many, so many. They think right now they're going with the flow. They're living their best lives. They're born that way. And they're living and let living. But we see in verse 12 that God's remnant is going to survive. And it's not many folks. And it's compared to, remember we talked about, it's going to be small and as scarce as a really fine gold. And going through that reminds me so much of Matthew 7, 13 and 14, when it says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are very few. I realize this is a lot, but I want to encourage you guys, encourage you that you are not going to be on that way. I want you to keep growing in your faith and I want you to reach out and share God's love. Because there's so many that get that. And there's so times that we go to share and we feel, you know, if I share and they reject it, they're rejecting me. But they're not. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting God. And one day they're going to look at him much like the soldiers on the wrong side did. They're going to have that moment of clarity and it's not going to be good. So, you know, we, we say pray big this year, pray big. And, and I can't think of anything bigger than one soul, even just one soul. If all of our prayers this year and just one soul is saved, I think it's incredible. So that's my continuation of my charge to you guys is pray big, pray big. May we see more than one, but I will take one. I'll take one. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you of what we see. We thank you that we know who's in control. We know that no matter what happens on this earth, the majority will wind up regretting the day of the Lord. We thank you that you gave us this picture to know how this ends. And then we will see in chapter 27, and we see all throughout the Bible, we see what it's going to be like once that day of the Lord stops and the earth settles and Jesus is now on his throne. May that be our guiding light. May we just grow in our strength and our ability to constantly reach out, develop those relationships, and then bring others to you. In your precious name we pray. Amen.